I was talking to uh, Ernie and Anne-Marie uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were just talking about um, at, at Jesus Culture. We were just chatting during dinner, and, and they were talking about when they moved here, and I was just kind of learning a bit more about them, and they said, oh, yeah, we moved here in 1991. And I came back with the comment, oh, 91, that's the year I was born. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So then I started thinking, well, I'm, you know, if you don't know, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit younger than most people here. <laughs> so I thought, how can I relate? Usually I used to try and relate to the, to the youth, right? I used to do the youth here, and I thought, okay, how can I relate to the youth? Well, now I'm thinking, how can I relate to, to some of the older people? And, and um, as you go through pictures you see back in the day, all people, all men back in the day, just had a nice big mustache, right? My dad just had a huge mustache. It's just a classic thing when you look back, it's nice big old mustaches. So I thought, so I was telling Jessica, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to grow a little mustache here and I'll relate to all the cool guys, older guys around here, I'll be more wise. And, and they said, no, Jessica said, no, don't do that, that's terrible. So, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to do it anyways, maybe. But then I didn't because I thought it didn't grow in very good and you guys might think I'm a big creep up here talking to you and... <laughs> Maybe you guys can't even see it. I don't have the, maybe it takes like senior pastor quality like Matt has to actually grow in full. I don't know. Long story short, I can't grow facial hair, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what that story was. So as you guys are going to First Peter, um, let me pray here. First Peter in the New Testament uh, near the end, just before Second Peter, right after James. Let's, uh, let's open up in prayer here. Lord, thank you um, just for your word. Thank you for the awesome worship we had today, Lord. Thank you that we can um, come here and just praise your name freely, God. I just thank you for, for the faith that we can have in you, Lord, that, that through, your, through your disciples and apostles of the past, Lord, we can um, get into the word and just learn more about you every day. I pray that you just uh, bless the words coming out of my mouth, Lord, that um, if anything's written down here you don't want me to say, that it would just be taken off of my notes, Lord. And um, Yeah, just bless this morning. Amen. Amen. So first Peter. Peter, originally born, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a backstory here as to who Peter is before we get too far into his, his letter here. Peter, he was originally born as Simon, he was born in the town of Bethsaida. He was the brother of the, the apostle Andrew. He was a fisherman. In Matthew, we see that Peter had a wife. Uh, we see Jesus healed his, his mother-in-law from a fever, potentially deadly fever. And, um, you know, when I say the name Peter, everyone has a similar idea that comes to their mind of, of who Peter was, right? They, Peter was a loud and, and boisterous apostle. He, he never knew when to keep his mouth shut. He was often in the wrong. He, he was a fisherman who was called to, to follow Jesus and become his disciple. Peter walked on water and then he fell in because of a lack of faith. He was called Satan by Jesus. He denied Jesus in front of crowds. You know, when, when we think of Peter, we think of what a screw-up he was, right? But did you know that not only is Peter a, a huge failure, he's also a huge success. You see, Peter in the Bible, he was pretty unique in the sense that he had actually a special insight into who Jesus, Jesus was. In the book of Matthew, we see that Peter is the first to call Jesus the son of the living God. And in response to that, Jesus, Jesus makes a promise to Peter. 
Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon, originally Simon, to become Peter, meaning rock. And, he, and Jesus said to Peter that upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter was quick to speak and slow to listen. He was the first to speak on the day of Pentecost. He was the first to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. When Jesus had risen from the tomb and, and the, the three women went to the tomb and, and found the rock rolled away, the, the, angels, the angels told the women to, to run and find the disciples and Peter. He got mentioned by name. You see, Peter was loyal and he was loved by God and he wasn't afraid to speak up. He knew and understood the idea of the grace of God and his life was devoted to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the faith that we can have through Jesus. Right up until the day he was crucified, which according to history, he was crucified actually upside down because he um, considered himself not worthy to be crucified right side up just like Jesus was. So Peter opens his letter, 1 Peter, uh, with a greeting. Let's read the first, first few verses here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In many other books of the Bible, often the le- the, each letter will open with a greeting, and, and usually the greeting will open with an explanation of who they are and, and why they are to be trusted and where they came from. And, and here Peter just simply opens with an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's no other explanation needed, no other, no other reasons as to why you should trust him. There's no explanation of the things he's done, the amount of time he spent with Jesus, the, the reasons why you should listen to this letter intently. You know, this is Peter. Everyone in the day knows Peter, and he knows that everyone knows him. This letter would have been received uh, with a sense of importance as the quote-unquote leader of the apostles writes to you. In verse 1 there, Peter's writing to the Roman provinces, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This letter was written during the time period of King Nero being in power. And this guy, King Nero, he did not at all like Christians. King Nero would be, he'd be killing and torturing Christians just nightly. He'd be, he was, uh, at the time Rome was kind of the biggest civilization in that area and King Nero was just setting an example for the rest of the world on how Christians were to be treated. Some scholars actually believe around this time when Peter wrote this was actually when Paul, um, Paul was killed by Nero, which I hope that wasn't a spoiler alert to anyone. Um, but they think that Peter was maybe writing a letter to the Roman area uh, just to encourage and spur on the exiles living in the foreign land of Rome. You know, these people, these people are, are Jews and they're, they're spread thin around the world. They're scared. They're Jews and Gentiles. They're scared. They're not sure what to do. They feel lost and alone. And Peter just begins his letter with a word of encouragement. He wants to assure you that you are the elect people of God. God knows who you are. He knew who you are before the foundations of the world were even began. Peter reassures us that though we may feel lost in this world, though now, which relates to us more than ever, we as Christians may feel like God doesn't know us. Peter makes sure that we know that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God, we are chosen by God to be obedient to Christ in all that we have do. 
Though we have been chosen to be made holy and to be set apart from the ways of this world, our human nature causes us to fall short. But thankfully, Peter reminds us at the end of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. He says, the sprinkling with his blood. And in my mind, when I think of sprinkling of blood, I go, oh, come on, that's sick. Come on, you're going to sprinkle blood on me? That's sick. Can it just be, yeah, you know, one of those metaphorical, oh yeah, sprinkling of blood, which it is. But if we look in the Old Testament, uh, we actually see three different reasons for the sprinkling of blood. Number one, which I think is up on the screen, if I got a good guy back there. Nice. It purifies us. The sprinkling of blood purifies us. One of the laws given to the people concerned the cleansing of lepers. Leviticus uh, 14, verse 4 to 7, tells us that the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall, be let, and shall let the living bird go into the open field. So here they perform a ceremony on, on the unclean leper to make them clean. And it's the same ceremony if you saw in there, that, that actually Jesus performed for us. It's like a perfect example of, of as, a, as an unclean sinner. The same way that a live bird is sacrificed, the blood ran, and the bird is released into the field. Jesus was sacrificed, blood ran for us, and then death was overcome so that he could return to heaven with his father. And not only that, but if you also see in there, they actually used a hyssop branch um, to sprinkle the blood uh, while Jesus was on the cross, they actually offered Jesus a drink with a hyssop branch. It's just like a beautiful, a beautiful melding of, of the cross right there, just in the Old Testament, so that they could cleanse the leper. So the sprinkling, sprinkling of the blood purifies us. Number two, the sprinkling of the blood ordains us to God. In Exodus, Exodus chapter 29, verse 21, the, the priests are made holy to come before God. The blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled over Aaron and his sons so that they could be made holy to come into the presence of God. Exodus 29 verse 21 says, Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So the sprinkling of the blood purifies us. The sprinkling of the blood ordains us to God. And number three, the sprinkling of the blood forms a covenant. Just before Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel form a covenant with the Lord with the commands that he's already given them. Exodus 24, verse 7 to 8. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the sprinkling of the blood purifies us, it ordains us to God, and it forms a covenant. You see, the shedding of, 
the blood of Jesus is so important and significant in the Bible that by being washed in the blood of Jesus, we are cleansed of our sin and made holy to come into the presence of God. And a covenant that is signed through Jesus with God, a covenant that he will not break. Verse 2 ends with a greeting that says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You know, we could probably, as I was going through this week, we, I probably could have done a whole sermon just on probably those first two verses. But we're going to get through the chapter today, so we won't spend too much time here. But did you notice quickly how seamlessly Peter actually wove the Trinity into that greeting? Verse 2 says, The foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, man, that Peter's good, isn't he? That Peter, even in his greeting, he, he seamlessly welds it all together right there. He truly had a divine inspiration into who Jesus was. He was more than, Jesus was more than just a man on the earth. He's a part of the Trinity that knows who each and every one of you are personally, making you holy through the Spirit and willingly shedding his own blood so that you may be saved. So in the first chapter of 1 Peter, as we get through the greeting there and we get into some meat of, of the point here, of his first letter here, Peter walks through three main points of his letter. And keep these points in the back of your mind. I think we have a slide up there of the three main points. If you're a note taker, um, these are just some good points to have in the back of your mind. You know, when, when I was in university, yes, I'm not just a plumber. I actually went to, well... <laughs> I'm a university dropout, I guess, but I had a prof in my first year. You know, it's a big jump going from, from small town Elphinstone to, to UVic was where I went the first year, and all of a sudden there's the same amount of people in your school is the same amount of people in one classroom. And uh, one of the profs there told us, told us the importance of taking notes, and he said um, that if you take notes, you actually have a chance you have a 34% chance of leaving here remembering something that I said, anything. Versus if you don't take notes, you have a 5% chance of leaving here remembering anything. And that 5% doesn't include my talk about my mustache. It actually means something important. So in the first, in the first uh, chapter of First Peter here, uh, we're going to go through what it means to be saved, what life is like saved, and what the conduct of the saved are. Those are the three main points that Peter lays out um, in his letter here to the people that he's writing to of Rome. So let's get into it. Verse 3. What it means to be saved. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We as Christians have a living hope. Like what we talked about last week, actually, in Romans, our hope carries on. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our hope magnifies day by day, evolving and growing. You know, to some of us, well, to all of us here, hope is not the same as what it is to God. You know, in this world, what are some things that you hope for? Me, I hope I, you know, I hope I don't screw up at work. I hope my car doesn't break down. I hope, uh, I hope the Canucks can get some decent scoring, right? But these are things that just aren't going to happen. <laughs> They're just things you aren't going to. But I sure hope they do. I sure hope they do. You know, hope to a man and hope to God, they're not the same thing. You see, when, when Peter says that we have a living hope, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is something that we can be confident in, that we can grab hold of, that we are sure of, and we can have a full assurance through Christ that God has formed a covenant with us through the sprinkling of his blood, a covenant that won't be broken. Not only do we have this solid hope through Christ, we have a, we have a living hope through Christ. Our hope isn't dead. It didn't just, it didn't just happen 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. No, our, our covenant with God is as strong today as it was yesterday and as it will be tomorrow. Our hope is, it has life, it's active, it's working. And so if we have a, an assurance and confidence through the death of Christ, well, what can I be confident in? What can I have this assured hope in? Verse 4 tells us, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have confidence, we have hope, we have an assured hope, that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for you. Our inheritance is, one, imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. And all those things are being guarded by the power of God through faith. Our, our reward in heaven cannot rot, it will never go bad, it will never diminish. By faith, we have the security of God's power protecting our inheritance in heaven for us. To be saved means to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To be saved means we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us that is guarded by God through our faith in the knowledge of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for my sins. Verse 6 goes on. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Some serious stuff there. So this brings us to point number two. Of, of Peter's letter here, what life is like saved? A little, a little slice of what, what life is like when you're saved by faith through Jesus Christ. So as we read there, you know, it's no, it's no secret in life. We talked about it last week even. And I think it's a common thing that we know that as a Christian, you're going to go through trials, right? That's, we all know that. We all know that, that trials and grieving are a part of life. We all know that, that Jesus didn't promise us a life full of joy. He didn't promise us to be rich and, and famous. And, you know, we know that trials and, and, and grieving and, and that as a Christian, you know, we know that the devil's going to attack you. We know that sickness happens. We know cancer happens. You know, we know, we know that there's no free pass here when we're here. And here Peter gives us an insight into the power of trials and faith. Faith in God is understanding that God is powerful and mighty and that you can put your trust in him. You see, God knows how much faith you have. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't need to test you to see your faith. 
rather the trials that you go through actually bring to the forefront of your mind how much faith you actually have. I find often, even in my, in my own life, that I actually underestimate the amount of faith in God that I actually have. Through, through the trials and fire of life, the genuineness of your faith is tested, and it's more precious than gold. The other night, actually two nights ago, I was, uh, I, I was on YouTube, and I was looking up how you refine gold, and one thing led to another, and I was about two hours in watching various videos on gold and, you know, how easily you get distracted. And, uh, and it was actually pretty interesting, though, watching how they refine gold. They take metal, and they refine it into this precious gold that we here on earth value more than anything. And um, so maybe go home later and look at it. But I'll give you a quick, I'll give you a quick insight into how it works. So you don't have to spend two hours like I did. To refine and purify the gold, they, they first take all the metal and, or the gold and they, they, they put it in a big furnace smelter and they get the torch going on that thing and heat it up till it's about, gold melts at about 1100 degrees Celsius till it's just fire red, smoking hot, that whole thing. It's just, just all the gold in there is liquid and it's, they're stirring it around with these big, massive gloves and face shields and everything. And it's smoking hot. And then they quickly dump it in water and they quench it. And they get these little round nuggets of gold and silver and whatever. And, and um, I should have Richard up here telling us about this more than anything. And they do, so they do a series of acid washes and hot plate and Bunsen burner heats and more acid and dissolving and slowly but surely what gets left behind after all this heating and melting and burning and all this and that, you get gold. You get pure gold. Through the trials and the fire that this gold goes through, the slough gets burned off and it gets dissolved away and until just the good stuff is left. And when we look at the armor of God, where is faith? Anyone know? Let's go. Let's flip there. Ephesians. Ephesians 6. Or if you're on an iPad, whip that pointer finger out and click there. It's always good to... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. It's good to have this in your back pocket so you know where it is. We college. Yes. We college. There you go. We college. You know, when I was in We College back in the day, I had every book of the Bible memorized front to back in order. And I was like, what, five? I don't know how old I was. What happened to me? What happened to me? We need We College for adults. <laughs> Ephesians 6, um, verse 10. Uh, we're going to look at the armor of God here quickly and just, just look for where faith is on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, I purposely didn't put it up on screen, so we have to go there, so we know where it is. Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, 
and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So where's, where's faith in there? It's, it's the shield, the shield of faith. Go home later and find out where, it, uh, where the pants are in the armor of God. Faith is what we hold out in front of us to protect us, to guard us. With the shield of faith, we're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. I like to think of the shield of faith as a, as a shield that grows with you, right? You know, maybe when you're a new Christian, you haven't gone through many trials and fires, you just have one of those little dollar store shields, the ones that some of the kids are around here with. Just those little plastic ones that the handle falls apart as you're trying to hold on to it and and, you know, things start going wrong and boom, that shield gets hit and it burns up. And you start realizing, man, I need a bigger shield here. And then, you know, you grab a bigger shield. You maybe go to, I don't even know where you'd get shields, other shields. <laughs> In between the dollar store one and the good old big metal one. What's that? Valley Village. You get a solid one from Valley Village. Maybe one of those homemade ones that people thought, ah, I don't want anymore. But it's kind of crappy, but it's still good. So you grab one of those and, and, you, and uh, you know, your, your shield keeps getting bigger and bigger. Your shield of faith keeps getting bigger and bigger with you as, as you go through these trials and until eventually you're, you're leaning on your shield, actually. You're using that shield as a weapon. As you're getting close, you're hitting people with the shield. You know, you, that, you know that no matter what comes in your way, this shield in front of you, this big Goliath-sized shield of faith, that no matter what comes at you, no matter how many fiery darts come at you, that you'll be taken care of, that by the power of God, your inheritance is protected in heaven until the day that Jesus comes. Verse 8 goes on. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you did not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Though you go through fire, trials and fire, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and you're filled with glory. That's holding the shield of faith firmly right there. Though you cannot see him physically, you love and believe in him. Though you have trials and fire, your life is filled with, with joy and glory. And that's what life is like when you're saved. Now, is that how every trial is going to be? No. I mean, I can't stand here and say that you're going to have a just beauty life and you don't care what happens to you. I mean, we're still human, right? We still grumble. We complain. We go through tough times. But, but as you go through those tough times, you know, the, the slough is burned off. The gold is refined to be made more pure until all that's left is Jesus. That's what it's all about is Jesus. And at the core of your faith, is Jesus Christ and the willingness to lay down his life for you. And though you may go through trial, though you may be 
even right now, though you may be in the middle of that smelting pot, you may be getting burned up, you know, with that, with that shield of faith in front of you, you have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as your faith shines for others, knowing that, you know what, God's got this, that my salvation is all I need. Verse 10 goes on. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know, it's amazing to me to think that all these, as I sat here reading this, thinking all these prophets who came before Jesus in the Old Testament, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus even ever stepped foot on the earth, yet they had faith that could literally move mountains, like, Sometimes it just makes me wonder what my problem is, right? These prophets recognized that they were actually serving us in the future with, as well as the people of the day, with some of the, uh, the prophecies and, and things that they were being told through God that were revealed to them. The book of Daniel, for example, has tons of end times prophecy that minister to us in the future. Prophets of the old, they predicted the coming of Christ and the good news that Christ was to bring and the power of the Holy Spirit on people from heaven. Interestingly, at the end of verse 12, it says, things which angels long to look. And this is, again, just fascinating to me that, that angels, we, look, we see that angels in the supernatural world are actually, they're longing to understand how, how the grace of God works for his church, how the good news from God can be used on a bunch of sinners like us. The phrase longing to look can actually be um, also kind of translated into the idea of they're, they're trying to look over a boundary. They're trying to, they're trying to peek over and see that the, the angels in heaven, they, they're trying to look over the boundary and understand how God is saving man, how God is saving us. Isn't that amazing? That's like, it blows my mind to think that angels want to see what's going on here on earth. That, that they, actually, they actually have more of a desire to figure out how God is saving man than man actually desires, right? How, they're trying to, how we're trying to be saved, we don't care as much as the angels care. The willingness to sacrifice his own son for a bunch of sinners. You know, throughout history, man has failed time and time again. Yet the fact that God sent his son to save us baffles even the angels as they desperately try to figure out why God would do such a thing. And that brings us to our third point of, of Peter's letter here. The conduct of the saved. If you're saved, what is your conduct that, that you act upon? Verse 13 goes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, hey, what's that there for? Because our faith and salvation in Jesus Christ, what is our conduct? What are we to do? 
So we've learned about all these things. You know, we, we have faith. We have salvation in Jesus Christ. We're saved by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What's our con- what are we to do? How, how do we live in this world? There's three things in verse 13 that he, Peter starts off with. Number one, he wants you to prepare your minds for action. He wants you to be sober-minded, and he wants us to set your hope fully on the grace brought at the revelation of Christ. Now probably, well, I shouldn't say the best part, but I think it's the best part of this whole chapter, is that if you look at the bottom of your Bibles, you'll see it actually says, um, to gird up the loins of your mind. I mean, come on. Gird up the loins of your mind? Why are we not using that? Why are we replacing that? That's, come on, boys, let's gird up the loins of our mind this week. To gird up the loins, it comes from a phrase when back in the day, um, when they were engaging in physical activity, like running or, or anything like that, they, the people would wear robes. So they would ensure they didn't get entangled in themselves and trip themselves up. They would wrap the robes up and, and tuck them in their belt. I had to, I'll give you a little insight into my lack of knowledge here. I was, uh, when I was looking up what it, trying to figure out what it actually meant, it said it would wrap it up in their girdle. So then I thought, well, what's a girdle? So then I looked up girdle and I looked up images of a girdle and I started getting into some weird stuff. So, <laughs> so I used the word belt. They wrapped it in their belt. You know, in the same way that, that Peter's telling us, you know, that, that he's telling us to wrap up the gird of our, of our loins, of our mind, he wants us to not get tripped up by our minds. He doesn't want your mind, you know, he says, don't let your mind wander. Don't let it trip you. The mind is a dangerous thing. I would know. I was once a teenage boy. Well, I still kind of am. And, uh, you know, you, Peter, Peter tells us that you have enough trials and fire that are going on in your life, outside of your mind. Don't let your mind be a tripping hazard in your life. Be sober-minded. Keep your mind clear in thought and rid of the loose thinking. In the same way that a warrior prepares for battle, you need to rein in your mind to be obedient to God's desires. How can we gird the loins of our mind? Midway through 13, it says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though we are redeemed by grace in the past, by the saving blood of Jesus Christ, there's more grace to be brought to you when Christ returns for a second time. Grace is so much more than just God sending his, his son to give us life. Grace is, the, is literally the source of every good and perfect gift that has come before you and is coming to you today and will come to you until the end of the earth. Verse 14 goes on with, with conduct to have as one being saved by God. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As you grow in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ, don't be bound by the passions of your former ignorance. God calls us to be holy. You know, this, this is more of like an offer of, hey, why don't you come? This is actually a command. Be holy, for I am holy. God is set apart from the sinful desires of man. And rather than, than wall himself in and build his own little fortress so that no one comes near, oh, don't take my holiness, I'm holy, stay away from me. 
He, he actually commands you to be holy like him. He invites you into the house. He didn't just send his son and, and save us. And then, okay, see you later, guys. See you later, alligator. I'll uh, see you in a little bit until I come back. No, no, he sets you apart. He invites you to be set apart with him yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A living hope. The command to be holy involves girding up the loins of your mind. Don't let that be the 5% that you remember. Setting your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ, being an obedient child to the ways of the Father, and leaving behind the passions of what you once were before being saved by the blood of Christ. Verse 17 continues, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, when I was in my first couple years of apprenticing um, to become a plumber, I, I don't think I've told this story to my boss, so don't tell him if you see him. Um, you know, we have this big tool at work. It's, it's a Milwaukee whole hog. It's this big kind of angle drill. It can drill, you know, five-inch holes through pretty much whatever if you got the right bit on it. And this, this drill has got some serious power to it. This thing is like, probably could rip your arm off if it wanted to. And one day I was drilling. I was, we were doing a renovation on a job and I don't know why I was there by myself, but I was there by myself. Um, if any of you guys know Marcus, he was with me, and he must have been having a coffee break, probably, that guy. <laughs> and, uh, no, he would never do that. And so I was, uh, I was drilling down below me like this, and I was pushing, and uh, so I was drilling a two-inch hole, I was drilling through some wood, and I had my head down, and it was getting really tough, and then, wham, it caught, and it... The, the handle came up and hit me right on the jaw, right on the knockout blow. And, uh, man, that friggin' hurt. <laughs> That's all I can say. Shouldn't say friggin'. Excuse me. It hurt a lot. And it took me, I laid down for 10 minutes. I think it was 10 minutes. I don't really remember. Because it was like, a, I think I was just on the verge of getting that knockout blow. I just laid down and I just sat there and I just was seeing stars, and it just took me a while, right, to, to figure out what just happened, and, and as I regained my consciousness, and I looked around, luckily no one was around and saw that embarrassing hit. <laughs> yeah, now you know. <laughs> it took me about, you know, 10, 15 minutes, regained my bearings, I thought, okay, I'm okay. My jaw still, actually, first I thought, oh, great, I, like, broke my jaw. It, like, cracked me right good. And, uh, but you know what? From that day on, I have never made that same mistake again. <laughs> I've treated that tool with respect and care because I now know that when used improperly, that tool can, it can go through anything it wants. It could rip your arm right off it if it wants. It could, probably if it gets you right, it could kill you pretty easily. It doesn't care it doesn't care who you are. It'll just rip you right in half. And in the same manner here, Peter says we're to have a reverent fear of God. For he's a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. 
Our God is a holy judge. Hashtag only God can judge me, right? Let me tell you something. He's judged you and he ain't liking what he's seeing. <laughs> when we call on God, Peter wants us to know that, that we should come to him in reverent fear, that there's a respect that needs to be had for the price that Jesus paid for you. It wasn't paid with perishable things like silver or gold. It, it was the blood of Christ. It was the blood of a man without sin or blemish. And that makes our conduct as believers all the more important to be daily renewed in the living grace of God, to gird up the loins of our mind, to let go of our former ignorance and to be holy for God is holy. Verse 20 says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The sacrifice of Jesus wasn't just made up on the spot. It wasn't just a quick fix that God came up with. He wasn't making it up go as he goes along. You know, it wasn't in, if any of you guys ever watched the TV show Lost, it wasn't like an episode of Lost where you feel like the writers are just making it up as they go along episode to episode. It was, it was foreknown before the basic foundations of the world. Jesus was known before anything else. You know, next time you read any book in the Old Testament, look for Jesus and you'll find him weaving in and out of out of history, since the day of creation, since the day as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Through Jesus, our faith has a conduit straight to God, straight to the source. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. To be holy is incomplete without brotherly love. Peter tells us that by being obedient to the truth, the result is brotherly love. To love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We are called to earnestly love one another. And you know what? I'm going to be honest. Um, sometimes I have a tough time loving people I don't like. <laughs> I think that's one of my faults is that I am very quick to dismiss people and, and, and throw people off. And ah, I don't need to love that guy. He's like, well, you know, I don't really have to love that guy, right? Like it's kind of a metaphor, you know. I don't have to. There's got to be some sort of loophole. So, so I looked up the word earnestly, the definition of earnestly. And um, the definition of earnestly is with sincere and intense conviction. We are to love our brothers. Shoot. <laughs> we love because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. I'm to love because God first loved me, not by sending a perishable man, but by sending the imperishable son who conquered death by his perfect love and sinless nature through the living and abiding word of God. Let's go verse 24 to the end here. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of a grass. The grass withers and the flower falls 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Though fleshly things wither and die, God's word does not. You know, I've, I've seen it firsthand, like many of you have. You know, the flesh fails, the flesh gets sick, the flesh withers beyond what you can even imagine. Beyond what I ever knew, the flesh can just fail. But at the end of the day, at the end of it all, God's word does not wither and die. God's word does not fail. The word of the Lord remains forever. And so as the worship team comes back up, um, I'm just going to leave here today with just some end of the facts application because I'm willing to bet at least, well, I'll be generous. Maybe 10% of you didn't take notes, right? (laughs) So remember this 5% if you don't remember anything else. You know, as I, as I was preparing this week, actually, I was, uh, I was totally in my fleshly desire for a good chunk of it, for a good chunk of the week. I spent a long time thinking, you know, man, I'm going to knock this one out of the park. I'm going to come here. I'm going to come here this morning, and God, I want, some, I want some insight into the Bible here that no one else has ever heard. I want some, I want some word from, words from God that are so deep and complex, right, that like, man, you guys are going to leave here today and just be in awe. (laughs) And I think God gave me a good smack on the head. And he reminded me that at the end of the day, it's just all about Jesus. You know, it's not complicated. Just give him Jesus. And, you know, by by faith in Christ, we have a living hope to an inheritance in heaven that is being guarded by God's power. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, for your sins, and you put your faith and trust wholly in God, your inheritance will be waiting for you in heaven. This week, as you guys go out into the world, into the week, um, you know, it can be tough. You might be going through trials and fire, and, or you might be just peeking into the smelting pot. You might be just about to go into it, chucked into it. You know, this week, as you go, just... Gird up the loins of your mind. So good. <laughs> Keep yourself in check as you prepare for action this week. Cling tightly to that shield of faith as you bat away the fiery darts of the evil one coming at you. You know, to many people on the earth right now, they see, they see the world as just going all hell in a handbasket, right? They're just full of misery and fear and they're just living in this falling world, fallen world. They're living in death. And you know, though we may be living in this same physical world, we don't need to live in death. We can live in the living hope that Jesus Christ brings us. He calls us to be holy, for God is holy. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, just for your son, Lord. Thank you, God, for Jesus, that, that because of your son, we have a living hope this morning, Lord, that we um, can cling tightly to God, that, that with the shield of faith, Lord, we don't need to be scared of anything, God, that as we go through trials and fire, we can, we can hide behind the shield of faith, Lord, and have a joy that is inexpressible, um, 
for everyone to see. And I just thank you for that this morning, Lord. I thank you for uh, just this time when we can get together. I pray that you help us um, prepare our minds for action this week, Lord, that we cut off the loose ends that may be dangling off our minds, Lord, that we just have a clear thought this week as we go out into the world. And I just thank you. Um, Just thank you again for your son. Amen.